Welcome to Our Lord's Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit OLCC.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at OLCCOKC. We're in part 16 of Revelation, chapter 14. And why do we do series like this? Why do we do long series sometimes? One reason is I don't think that there's a better way to approach the scriptures than the way that they're laid out. And so I have found at different seasons of preaching and teaching that I have to come up with an outline or I've got to come up with something interesting or clever. And I am discovering rediscovering how the Lord has laid it out the way that he chose to, even the structure is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we walk through the book and we go chapter by chapter because that's how it was given to us. And as we're seeing, if you remember last week, that also requires of us to study and talk about and pray into the difficult passages. If we just kind of cherry pick here and there or do just topical teaching and preaching, then we can skirt around hard things like the Antichrist and the beast and some of those things that we looked at last week. But this way, we're working through it in a thorough way, and it also models how we approach and study, pray through the Bible. So Revelation 14, today we're going to look at the Lamb and his followers, verses 1 through 20. And before we do that, I just want to reiterate, some of you, this is your first time to read Revelation, two primary themes that we're seeing over and over again. One is every single chapter flows from those opening chapters, especially four and five. Everything flows from the throne room of God. And so the message from start to finish in Revelation is Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord. He's been given the name above every name, and he's already won the victory. So we're going to keep that in our minds as we look at chapter 14. The second thing is that Christ is the one, the only one, who is capable and qualified to open the scroll of God's plan of salvation in human history. And so Revelation is walking through the opening of those seals the opening, the unfolding of God's plan of salvation in human history and how he's God bringing all of this to its consummation, its completion in the person of Jesus. And he's wonderful and amazing. He's Lord. Last, last time, and thank you to Kaylee for preaching last week, two weeks ago we looked at chapter 13, for those of you that have heard it. We looked at two beasts that served the dragon, Satan. And these two beasts were the Antichrist and the false prophet. We saw that these two beasts, for the first century readers, symbolize Rome and the Roman emperor, Domitian. But they also, as we looked at, like all prophecy, it has kind of a telescopic series of fulfillments. It also includes all empires and governments that use political, economic, and spiritual power to deceive people and to exalt humanity over God and to persecute God's people. 
So today we're going to look at chapter 14, if you want to turn there. And this chapter is actually a contrast with chapter 13. So we got to see Satan working through these two puppets, the Antichrist and the false prophets. And now we're going to see Christ and his people and his followers. So you'll see many parallels here. We're going to look at three sections. The first one is riveted on the person of Jesus as the triumphant lamb and his followers. And then we're going to look quickly at three messages of some angels. And then we're going to look at harvesting the earth. So Lord, we pray as we read and look at this passage that you would give us insight. We pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God so that we might understand this and know you and interact with you, Jesus, the living word. Amen. I keep toying with the idea of having a stand, but boy, when it's 20 verses, that's tough. I think we'll stand next week. It's only about 10 verses. (laughs) Revelation 14. Then I looked, and there was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. These follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They have been redeemed from humankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found. They are blameless. Verse 6, then I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. He said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Then another angel, a second Followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then another angel, a third, followed them, crying with a loud voice, Those who worship the beast and its image, and receive a mark on their foreheads or on their hands, they will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured unmixed into the cup of his anger. And they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image and for anyone who receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who from now on die in the Lord. Yes, says the Spirit. They will rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. 
Then I looked, and there was a white cloud. And seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to the one who sat on the cloud, Use your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So the one who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Then another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over fire, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle over the earth and gathered the vintage of the earth, and he threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for a distance of about 200 miles. This is the word of God. Just let that soak in for a minute again. This was written, recorded, and to be read in the church then and in the church now. This will wake you up, won't it? There's, there's lots in here. We're going to look at three things here, and we're limited on our time, but I just want to address a few things that might be more challenging to decipher. Chapter, uh, verses 1 through 5, it's all about the lamb, the lamb, the lamb. And in contrast to the dragon that we saw in the previous chapter who stood on the sand, you remember that? And the beast who was in the sea and the beast on the land, this lamb is standing on a mountain. So the text is showing us that he is exalted and there's no one like him. He is absolutely central in this vision. This vision really isn't about the grapes of wrath, or the angelic messages. Friends, this message is about Jesus, the crucified, resurrected Lamb of God, the one who was promised in Isaiah 53, the slain Lamb, the one who was worthy to open the scroll. This vision is about him. He's the Lamb who is worshipped by the multitude from every nation in chapter 7 that we've encountered. And he's standing on Mount Zion. This signifies the epicenter of God's purposes in history. It could be that he's literally standing on the mountain, but as we know from the rest of Revelation, it's highly symbolic. And the vision here is blending the past, the present, and the future. One commentator says that Zion is the end-time city where God dwells with and provides security for the remnant of his people, the 144,000. Zion, if you read in scripture, listen to what Zion symbolizes. It is the city where God dwells, Ezekiel 48. It is the city in which God delights, Isaiah 62. It is the city where God is enthroned, Jeremiah 3. It is the city 
where God has enthroned his messianic king, Psalm 2. So in the New Testament, Paul takes up these themes and talks about the Jerusalem, Zion, that comes from above. So it really is about the throne, the dwelling place of God's presence. So Christ is right in the center of what God has been doing through human history, and one day we'll be with him. Who are the 144,000? Have we encountered them before? Yes, we did in chapter 7. And in short, they represent the Old Testament and the New Testament people of God, the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. And you can go back and revisit that in chapter 7, verse 4. So here's Christ, the exalted messianic king, standing on Mount Zion with 144,000, his people from throughout the history of the church gathered around him. What's written on them? The Father's name, Christ's name written on their foreheads in contrast with that sobering stuff that we looked at last time. The worshipers, the followers of the beast have 666 on them. And these worshipers and followers of Christ have the name of God the Father and the name of Christ written on them. I want you to look at this real quickly. Look at in your Bible or on your phone, Revelation 3.12. Again, this stuff is so rich. There's so many threads and themes woven together. And I think it's important as we look into these latter chapters that we look back and see what the vision is reinforcing, what's it, what it's highlighting. Revelation 3.12 promised to one of the churches saying if they overcome the name of God and God's city would be written on them. So having the name of God, the name of Christ, the name of the city where God is enthroned. Look at Revelation 22.4. Skip forward, skip ahead a little bit. Again, we're looking at why this is so important. The name of God written on these people. Revelation 22.4 says that God's redeemed. His saints will see God's face and God's name will be written on their foreheads. A little personal note here. This is one of Amanda's and my favorite verses to pray for our kids. We pray this close to every day. Lord, would you let our kids see your face? And would you write your name on their foreheads? That'll pray. That covers it, right? Lord, get them. Protect them. Own them. We've done and we're doing all that we can in your grace. We're nowhere near perfect parents, but Lord, you are good. Pursue them. Show them your face and write your name. Imprint your name on their foreheads, on their lives. Amen? The saints are singing a new song. And it's loud, the text says. Verses 2 and following. Verse 3. Little note here. At verse 3, the 144,000 are singing a new song. Where is it? Where are they singing the new song? 
It's before the throne. A new song in scripture means that God is doing something. God is delivering. God is redeeming. And a new song erupts from the hearts of his people. But it's key to see where it's happening. It's happening before the throne. I want to speak to our worshipers and worship leaders and future worshipers. New songs come as you are fixed on the face of God. New songs come from before the throne. There's something about declaring his lordship. This morning, I felt as spiritual as that chair. Had a groggy, rough night, was exhausted this morning, and I said, I took that verse right there and I started saying, new songs come from before your throne. I'm on my walk, waking up, working out the crick in my neck, and I started saying, Lord, I've got a new song. I've got a new song. I'm before your throne. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord over my life. He's Lord over the sin in me. He's Lord over my family. He's Lord over the church. Next thing I know, about two or three minutes in, I got a different perspective on the day. New songs, new perspective comes from before the throne. Not groveling in our weakness, but lifting up our eyes and saying, you are sovereign. You are king. You are Lord. You are good. And then a new song comes. Amen? So this stuff is practical. This is practical stuff. And we got to keep that in mind as we look later on in the text here where it gets rather heavy. The Lord wants to give us new songs before the throne. And there's a secrecy to it. I think the text is saying there at verse 3 and following that it is for those who are before his throne. This gets interesting. Verses 4 and 5. The 144,000, the people of God. And in this moment, the end time people of God are described by these three characteristics. It's rather strange, isn't it? At verse 4, they're undefiled with women. They are virgins. Some commentators and some Christians in history in the first couple of hundred years of the church took this literally, and they felt that there was kind of an elite group of Christians who were celibate, but Scripture doesn't teach in any way that sexual activity within marriage is defiling. Genesis 1.28, the beginning of the story, what does God tell Adam and Eve as he looks on creation, including them and their bodies? What does he say? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So the text is not saying that there's some kind of elite group of celibate saints who are better than the others. No, no, no. I think there's something figurative here. How do I know that? Because I think scripture teaches it. Listen to this. You can write these verses down and just look at them later, but looking at this being a more figurative thing that God is highlighting about end time saints. In Deuteronomy 23, 9 and 10, Israelite soldiers were told to abstain from sexual activity before battle, probably because of focus and getting 
ready, getting in that mindset. I'm getting ready to go into battle. This symbolizes for us consecration of ourselves, including our bodies and our sexuality to prepare for the warfare that we're in. Another thing that reinforces this is probably figurative. The Old Testament, Exodus 19, the leaders of Israel were told to consecrate themselves and abstain from sexual activity before they encountered the holiness and presence of God. Probably them saying with their actions, you are more important than anything we can engage in and we're actually setting apart ourselves and we're preparing to meet you in your holiness. Also interesting, in Hosea 1, virginity symbolizes purity from idolatry. The whole analogy, the metaphor, the beautiful picture that we find in Hosea, his story represents that, that God's people can set themselves aside in their faithfulness to God, much like a future spouse would set themselves apart and be faithful to their husband, to their wife. Paul picks this up, and I want you to look at this, if you can, very quickly. 2 Corinthians 11, 2-4. Again, this is an important thing. As you read through the text, this can be a rather puzzling passage, can it? So I want to linger with this for a moment and show you Scripture interprets Scripture, especially with the book of Revelation. 2 Corinthians 11, 2-4, not going to read it, but Paul in 2 Corinthians 11, 2-4 is talking to the church at Corinth, and he's saying that I have betrothed you as a pure virgin to Jesus. Now, he doesn't mean that literally. He's using it metaphorically. He's saying, church, be faithful to Jesus in your body, with everything that you are, body, soul, and spirit, you are engaged to Jesus. Now give yourself to him in holiness and in purity. And we'll see later on in Revelation 21 that the church is the bride and she's to keep herself faithful and loyal and undivided in herself, body, soul, and spirit, her devotion to the bridegroom. A second thing that these 144,000 saints do and characterize is they follow the lamb wherever he goes. So if the first one dealt with consecration and holiness and purity, this one deals with discipleship. I am listening. I'm sensing. I'm going to make a comment to our young people. Listen up, young people. I'm going to make a comment about virginity that is a little more literal. All of us, everyone in this room right here is called to be a pure bride, right? But for the young people, I am going to encourage you to wait for your future spouse. There is something about that that's incredibly important, and you need to hear that from me. Now, is there grace for all of us where we have had sexual encounters with other people? You better believe it. We've already seen that we are this such, we're some of you community, right? God can forgive and restore and renew, but for you young people, 
I'm going to encourage you to think about being married to the Lord. And say, Lord, I, amen, Anna. Thank you. Her timing is impeccable. I know Anna well, and she is giving me an amen, so thank you. So young people, you will have all kinds of pressure. You're bombarded with crazy sexual messages. We're in Babylon, friends. And so the church, like never before, has to come around our young people and say, be fully devoted to Jesus, and your body belongs to him. Your sexuality belongs to him. And he can fill you with grace and power that you don't have. And you can abstain from all the other things that people are, pornography, sexual activity, sexual confusion. Jesus can see you through all of that. And you can walk in purity and holiness with him. Amen? That wasn't in the notes. But it's really, really important that we talk about that in constructive ways. And again, do you hear me? For those of us who have sexual brokenness, the Lord can heal it and mend it. And there's no one like him in that. But for the young people that haven't had such experiences, I encourage you to cling to Jesus. Amen? So that you can follow the lamb wherever he leads. Really, this passage is talking about his suffering soldiers and their willingness to follow him fully devoted a third thing verse 4 they're redeemed from humanity as first fruits first fruits means many things in scripture Romans 8:23 talks about the first fruits the church as the beginning of God's new creation beautiful image here but we're going to move on from it those are the three key characteristics. But then it goes on to say, these people, the church, the saints, don't lie and they're blameless. They reflect character, the character of Christ. Isaiah 53, which is lingering behind this whole text. In Isaiah 53, 9, it says this about the suffering servant, which would be fulfilled by Jesus. There was no deceit in his mouth. So Christ willingly suffered with God for truth and there was no deceit found in his mouth. So friends, young people, all of us from the youngest to the oldest, are you consecrating yourself, body, soul, and spirit to the Lord right now? Are you consecrated? If not, this is a good consecration day. It's a good day to revisit that and say, Lord, I give myself to you. I want to give myself to you, body, soul, and spirit. And if there are things that I need to open up to, to have you clean house, to heal me, I want to start today. Friends, it's easier to prepare now than in a foxhole. You hear me? Easier to prepare now than in the absolute heat of the battle in a foxhole. So I encourage you, beloved, as friends, do business with God. Consecrate yourself to him. Confess your sin to one another. Find someone that you can walk through healing with. Now is the time. Now is the time. 
And man, he's good. The Lord is so good. I remember one time I was like, Lord, how did you put up with me? And he said, I love the sin out of you. I was like, what? And he said, I love the sin out of you. And I was like, I just, I, I'm stuck. I keep doing the same things. And he said, just come on. Don't turn away. Keep coming. I will love the sin out of you. So friends, consecrate yourself to him. Give yourself to him. You can trust him. He will love the sin out of you. But there are some things that that's going to require from you to spend time with him, to be vulnerable with other people, to lean into community, to be truthful with yourself, with the Lord. All right. Uh, verse 6. And I'm going to lop some things out here. So can you give me a moment to look over this and just see what I think is crucial and what you can go home and look at later. There's three angels here. Verse 6 through 7, there's an angel that proclaims an eternal gospel. But it's bittersweet. As we'll see, the gospel, friends, is good news. It's the greatest news about the love of God in Christ Jesus. But this text lets us know that's only part of the story. What is God rescuing us from? What is God loving out of us? What is God wanting to draw us and save us from? It's judgment. So when we hear about the eternal gospel, we've got to have that in mind. Look at verse 7. Part of the gospel that John is seeing in this vision and hearing proclaimed and that we should have in our hearts is fear God and give him glory. Fear God and give him glory. Friends, Jesus says in John 15, you're not just my servants, you're my friends. And so there's a closeness and an intimacy and a friendship we have with Jesus. But I can tell you right now, the days are coming when we've got to rediscover the fear of the Lord. Fear God and give him glory. Now, does that mean tremble and cower because the mean parent has come home and is going to beat us? That is not it at all. This is a clean, pure reverential awe we know who we're dealing with a little bit of who we're dealing with we don't take him lightly and so it's incumbent on me to say yes God is full of love and mercy and grace for all of us it's infinite for the nations but we don't take it lightly we should fear God we should feel it in our bone marrow God you're awesome you're infinite in mercy, but I won't take you for granted. I respect you. Let's look at the last section. You can go back and look at the other two angels and their messages, but I want to look at this last thing and end with it because Amanda and I had an ongoing conversation about this. And she's like, what? These two harvests, what is that about? And I said, ask Brad Sunday. So verses 14 through 20, there's two harvests, right? And there's different ways to interpret this. And I'm going to suggest what I think is the most compelling way. Some people view both of these 
as saying the same thing. Both of them are about judgment. That could be. But I think I'm more convinced that the first one is actually the harvest, verses 14 through 16, the grain harvest, is about Christ gathering the righteous to himself. And the second one is actually the grape harvest is a judgment of those who've said no to the love of God. Look at verse 14 here as we end. There's one like a son of man. We've seen that over and over again. This is the one who has fulfilled all of the prophetic promises in the Old Testament. Daniel 7, in Daniel's vision, he sees one like a son of man. John is seeing the same one. It's the crucified, resurrected Lord Jesus. He's holding a sharp sickle. It might seem strange that one of the angels tells him to swing the sickle over the earth. Why would he receive those instructions? Friends, this is prophecy. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Christ returns, and it's the voice of the archangel that's announcing his coming. There's something mysterious in Scripture. Only the Father knows when Christ will return. Is that right? Only the Father knows. So in this text here, it could be that an angelic messenger who's come directly from the presence of God is announcing something, and then Christ enacts it. The point of the passage, though, is that the harvest is fully ripe. The hour has come, the end of the age, and the Son of Man, without effort at all, harvests the earth. He harvests China and Africa and Australia and the Middle East and Mexico. And I'm, Christ is the great harvester. Kaylee talked about looking at the fields, they're white for harvest. Well, Christ is the great harvester. And we're living in a day right now where we're seeing Matthew 24, 14 actually come to pass. Christ is harvesting the earth in an unprecedented way. And we're getting to see it. And there's great suffering along with that. The grape harvest here, verses 17 through 20. It's pretty sobering, isn't it? This image is taken from Isaiah 63 where a divine warrior treads the wine press. I'm ending with this. In the biblical time, harvested grapes were placed in a trough and trampled by foot with the juice flowing into a lower basin where it was collected. This became a metaphor or a word picture for the judgment of the wicked. This is uh, pretty overwhelming. The text ends here. At verse 20, and we'll know as we look at some of the next three or four chapters that there's going to be war. Christ predicted it in Matthew 24. Revelation reinforces it. The nations left to their own devices war with one another and kill one another. And there's going to be times in history where the blood flows. And Christ sits as Lord over those situations. I don't understand how all this works. I humbly submit to the text, but I just, I don't know how it all works. I just know that Christ is beckoning the nations and saying, give yourself, believe, receive the mercy of God. And if the nations refuse, then judgment 
begins to work itself out, often because of their own behavior. But in this passage here, blood flows as high as the horse's bridle, about four feet. And what do we mean about 200 miles? It's the entire landmass of Palestine, ancient Palestine. It's basically from here to Dallas, 200 miles bathed in blood. Friends, this is sobering. I know it's heavy stuff. But we've got to read, study, pray, give ourselves to, and proclaim the whole counsel of God. God saves us from wrath through his son, through the blood of his son, through this cross. But if you refuse the good news of salvation in Christ, there's judgment. And that's what this text teaches, and our hearts should be tender before it. It's like eating the scroll. There's sweetness to the word of God, and there are some elements that are bitter. This is one of those. So, Lord, we ask you as we end here that you would tenderize our hearts, that first and foremost, we would know the love of God in Christ Jesus. But, Lord, I pray that we would be so rooted in your truth, in your revelation, your word, that we would ingest and speak the sweet and the bitter. Help us do it as Christ did. And we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. I appreciate it. We're at 12.03. But sometimes passages like this require a little bit more. Next week is Revelation 15. If you want to read ahead, we're going to look at the new song that erupts before the throne. It's a little shorter. I encourage you to read ahead.